watching all movies with Rebecca and Jason. Are you gonna love them or hate them? Here comes the binge. Hey everybody, welcome to The Binge, in which a couple of homos review the latest movie theater releases. I am Jason Leroy. And I'm Rebecca Larte, and today we have three movies for you. A Quiet Place, Blockers, and Gemini. And as always, we're gonna rate these movies on a three-tiered scale, with Binge It being our highest rating. Consuming moderation means it's okay, but it's kind of meh. And send it back means... Life is too short for that mess. Jason, what's up with you, bud? Thank you for asking. Uh, let's see. Well, this past week uh, saw the kickoff of the San Francisco International Film Festival. Yeah, SIF. SIFIF. SIFIF. SIF film is happening. It's happening right now. And I got to attend the opening night festivities, which included a screening of a film called A Kid Like Jake. Uh, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival earlier this year. It is directed by Silas Howard, who mm. is from Transparent. And, and also, what was that movie? Uh, Silas Howard. There was like a buddy, it was like a trans buddy flick that was really funny from like the early 2000s. I can't think of the name of it. Oh, I think that uh, he may have talked about that at the, and I didn't know what it was. It's it's good. I think we should revisit it. Oh, okay. Well, this one, this time he's got quite a cast um to tell the story of uh, so it's adapted from a play and we're not gonna do a full review of it right now just a little teaser uh but it's a story about uh two parents in new york city uh whose five-year-old son jake uh is sort of presenting increasingly female and uh and they are at that age where they are trying to figure out what kind of school they can get him into mm-hmm. and then they start to wonder if maybe they should like kind of should we use his potential fluid gender identity as a way to make him stand out more since otherwise <laughs> he's just like oh a, a white cis male boy and nobody that's not going to give him any kind of edge in terms of admissions for these like tony private schools <laughs> and uh, is it a comedy it should have been that's <laughs> that's part of why it doesn't work is because oh, I'm, like, no. I'm like that is the makings of a really terrific modern farce it really is um you know to see like these parents just like trying to read too much into their child's every gesture to be like is, i think this is it this is it that he's he's trans and we need to tell the schools <laughs> um and uh so that part of it doesn't really work super well another part that doesn't work is the casting of the parents who are played by claire danes and Jim Parsons. Oh. Let me say um, that the word sizzle doesn't, <laughs> doesn't quite describe the chemistry between the two of them. Oh. Uh, huh. It seems like basically if, if Carrie Matheson from Homeland and her gay Southern best friend decide to <laughs> raise a child together, it's essentially a dynamic that the two of them bring across the screen. It's that thing where it's like, you know, what do you, how, how does that work when you're like, why would you, why, you can't cast gay actors as just gay people. Right. So then what do you do? Well, I think that, you know, as an actor, uh, it kind of falls to you to be able to uh, convince mm. <laughs> to act. Yep. That's okay. Yeah. That's actually a really easy question to answer. Because Jim Parsons just doesn't quite push himself outside of his Jim Parsons-ness. And, um, and so he's just kind of, so she's like storming around. She's like, oh, we owe it to him. Or do we owe it to him? What are we going to do? Our marriage is in a shambles and our son is not going to be able to. And he's just like, now listen to me. This is not going to help you at all. I'm getting, getting so upset. Uh, and she's like, but, but you know, this is, this is our child's future and we owe it to him. She starts crying. Right. Does like the full Claire Danes cry face. And he's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> You, oh no! You, you just need to bring it down to a simmer, <laughs> uh, and uh, it is yeah, it is not okay, the most convincing. Yeah. That there's, was actually a really stupid question that uh, I asked you. There's, there's like this scene at the very beginning. Um, the first time they show them together, they are in. They're waking up in bed in the morning, and he <laughs> he tries to do what I guess is meant to be a very casual, familiar, intimate, marital kind of reach over and sort of grab her hip as she's laying there. And it's so practiced and kind of forced. Like, and now I reach over and I touch her right here. <laughs> and then uh, he's a bazinga. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he really is a terrible actor. <laughs> it is. Uh, and, and, and she is just giving it her all. She just makes all kinds of googly eyes at him. And, um, but, uh, but you're just like, well, I see why this is not working. Yeah. Uh, so, but it has a great cast. Octavia Spencer is also in it. Uh, but, uh, but, but for what, 
I'm not sure. Can't quite say. Not the strongest opening night selection of the SF Film Festival mm-hmm. over the years. Not even as strong as last year's title, which was Landline, which I know you didn't even really care for that much by the time you saw it. Landline. Didn't you watch it with the one with Jenny Slate? Oh, I did. And Edie yeah. Falco. Yeah, I wasn't quite quite a fan of that one. No. 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 SF Film, you got to get your shit together. Wow, calling him out. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I know they all listen. So <laughs> I apologize in advance for the uh, for the pulling of the plugs from Access that we used to have that we won't have anymore. Damn. Uh, Rebecca, what's up with you? Um, Not too much. I've been watching a lot of uh, stand-up on Netflix. I finally watched um, the Sarah Silverman, it's like Little Speck of Dust. Oh, yeah. I, it's so funny how she really is an amazing comedian. She, I, yeah. I haven't ag- agreed with everything she's done and all of her mm-hmm. stances. But in terms of like um, her timing and her particular way of, of doing like really, she's like a really good actor, right? Like she sells you down this, like she does that thing where you're like, this is a real story. This mm-hmm. is something that really happened. And then she even this when she does these tricks where she like explains what kind of joke it was that she was telling. And but like that works. She really like, I feel like all this standup was like her and her comedian friends being like, I'll bet you can't work explaining a joke into this standup special and make it work. And she was like, oh. Oh, watch me. And she just like says these. um, Yeah, it just shouldn't work. And it does. And she really is a really one of the greats. So, so great. And she's somebody who I think is like the best example of a comic who has adapted her comedy with the times. Yeah, yeah. In a really thoughtful way. She's made mistakes and she's gone back and updated it. Yeah, she's gone back because I mean, I first fell in love with her. Um, with Jesus's Magic, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. came out in 2005, and which I saw my very first Thanksgiving in San Francisco. I was uh-huh. with, I had to work that day at my call center job at headsets.com, <laughs> and <laughs> and after work I had you know I I had no place to be, and so I just walked across the street to go to the Lumiere, R.I.P. To see um, Jesus's magic, and I was like, "This is the funniest shit I have ever seen." <laughs> so good. And um, but then you know, since then, she has really owned her shit and been like, yeah. "You know what? Like, yeah, I don't really stand by that special anymore because I was playing, um, you know, I was playing sort of like shock, you know, race 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 humor, mm-hmm. um, and you know, the the laugh was just like, oh, I'm saying the shocking racist thing, and." And she's again. Like, yeah, I could, you know, sort of couch myself and hide in that and be just like, oh, well, but I, it's my character and the humor is the character. But she's like, you know, she's like, I, I do think that she's like, I've been called out that that is disingenuous. She's like, and I think that's true. I think it was disingenuous. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, and she's a great example of somebody who has owned that, not been doubled public, down, on not it. been publicly defensive about it. Amy Schumer. Uh, I mean, Amy Schumer, I think, has come around. Um, you know, she has she has publicly um, owned the kind of racial humor that she was mm. doing she? yeah no she has oh, okay i just don't know yeah no she has um she's such a punching bag uh but no you know she had like um you know i think we've even talked in the show before she had that one joke that she really used a lot where she was like you know you know like i used to date oh yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. um so anyway so she yeah no she had a whole public like social media like fully talking about that joke and about why she went why she'll never tell it again and oh, why okay. she sees mm-hmm. why it's a problem um but uh but no sarah silverman is is just the best and it's sort of like so today this is fresh in my mind because i was just watching to be clear i don't watch this scott watches it <laughs> um bill maher mm, mm. who just perennially every week finds new ways to just be the absolute living worst he's the worst him jordan peterson fucking sam harris all those know-it-all free speech abusing bullshit assholes i have nothing to say so nothing to say about this so today's rant uh was so and this is one of the only times that i've actually ever seen literally his entire panel uniformly turn on him <laughs> um he was defending laura ingram oh god uh from you know how she you know has been talking shit uh on social media and everywhere else about the parkland kids and you know how like when she took a pot shot at david hogg on Twitter, he called for a boycott of her, and it's been successful. Mm-hmm. And Bill is, to this day, he once had, I guess, somebody called a boycott on him, and it was successful, and he lost work because of it. And as a result, rather than be like, look inside and be like, maybe I should really revisit what I did that led... No, he has, he is so butthurt about any kind of... He, he says that, um, that that practice of calling for boycotts of advertisers is m- morally wrong. 
What? And he says, like, what? and he says it's a violation of free speech. That is not what free speech is. I know. And his entire panel was like, no, Bill, no one is making it illegal for Laura Ingram to say anything. And uh, and he's just like, he's like, no, but you don't, you don't, you don't fuck with someone's money. Um, and, yes. Uh, and he, yes, and, you and, do. and they're like, what? The First Amendment says absolutely nothing about like how you get to say what you want, and also you get to cash in from advertisers who support your your appearances. That's right. not what the First Amendment says. Uh, Laura Ingram is facing no, you know, criminal charges as a result of her comments, and um, and he just kept doubling, tripling, quadrupling down. He's like, no, it's an outrage, and um, and then his guest was Louis Anderson, oh, and who just like you know, pottered out there and plopped down, and Bill's like, ah. I've never heard Louis Anderson actually like speak, and uh, and Bill's like, ah, oh, you do believe all this shit, and Louis's like, oh, I can't believe it either, ah, it's bullshit, all these, everyone's so fucking sensitive, and Bill's like, ah, oh, tell me, oh and, no, yeah, and then Bill basically just like ignored his panel for the rest of the episode, so he could just like have like the, ah, oh, you get it, you get it, you're uh. also a fucking dinosaur of comedy, uh, <laughs> which, um, yeah, I would have hoped that Louis Anderson through his character on baskets would be more sensitive right um but no he at the end of the day is still an old man an old white man in the comedy world and so better luck with someone else yeah right um but no sarah silverman is 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 the actual best have you watched her hulu show uh a little bit yeah i watched the first episode where she goes down and yeah, explains I, what a jewish person is yeah um that was good I, i'll watch more um, I, I feel like she's like genuinely an enlightened person yeah like she comes across like she's the real deal. Yeah, I think so. this is part of, like where she's um, a wise, wise woman. Her joke. She has a joke about how she um, had to have surgery and how she was like asking for more drugs, but then was like trying mm-hmm. to explain Brexit. And then the end of the special, <laughs> they actually were taking videos of her, like high before surgery, um, explaining Brexit. It was so good. It was so amazing. Because, like some because... people have Bentleys, and those people are upset about. <laughs> <laughs> oh right because she wanted to prove to them that she wasn't too fucked up right right she's like i can do anything i can explain brexit and then she was just like then she goes on this like you know speech about you know if everyone just like if you know, uh politicians could represent people's actual needs and not try to scare people into making it was, it, yeah, even no, high as fuck it was like it was a very, very cogent sensible, a very cogent explanation of kind of, explanation. it really contextualized the really. brexit thing. <laughs> And on top of all that, she was in Jenny Lewis's Rise Up With Fists video. Mm, yeah, and she was the best part of the Book of Henry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, that she was. Um, yeah, that, the one part of, that was really funny, she was also talking about that surgery and how her and her boyfriend have this joke that anytime that like an elevator closes or door closes, the last thing they say is, let's see other people. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. Uh, and now, they have, now like, they're broken up. Oh, are they? Yeah. I feel like um, going to get, if you can do that thing where you're like, oh, if I could pay an b- amount of money to have a dream happen would be like to have like uh, an afternoon boozy brunch in LA with her and Tignataro. Mm-hmm. And like maybe some, like one of them brings a dog. <laughs> if you're really dreaming big. I am dreaming really big. Gonna, I think really it's very possible though. I feel like it goes some like those places in Echo Park on a Saturday and a Sunday mm-hmm. and eventually it'll oh, happen. Oh yeah, just sitting on a patio like somewhere. Taylor Dane behind me. Taylor Dane? <laughs> you never see her Tignataro's Taylor Dane Oh, right. That's another like that joke. I was like Swift, Rebecca. It's Taylor Swift. That joke is another just like watching someone at their craft do something mm-hmm. that is so amazing did you watch one mississippi uh i did it was very good so good so good i'm so sad that got canceled it did it did son of a bitch amazon's canceling everything they just canceled mozart in the jungle and that's like that literally <laughs> that was still on that was still on but it was also an actual award winner of theirs yeah, that was the first one uh yeah so hmm. yeah who fucking knows and no one knows what's happening with transparent mm, well Amazon's gone mad. Um, now that we're doing a movie podcast, mm-hmm. um, uh, off the TV podcast, yes. um, let's talk about our first movie of the week, which is A Quiet Place. A family of four must navigate their lives in silence after mysterious creatures that hunt by sound threaten their survival. If they hear you, they hunt you. So that is um, a quiet trailer mm-hmm. for A Quiet Place. This new movie um, starring John Krasinski and Emily Blunt, real life couple. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some fake children. <laughs> I wonder if that's weird. Is that weird? 
<laughs> Weird for a, a real life couple to have fake children in a yeah, movie. Yeah. Oh, that's the Hollywood way. I guess so. Um, Jim Parsons couldn't pull it off. Mm-mm. Can John Krasinski? He can. Yes. Yes. He seems he's, like a dad. He's very convincing as a dad. 100%. I buy that. Yeah. Um, this movie um, is the um, audio opposite of um, 13 Hours Secret Soldiers of Benghazi, which was a loud place. Although, Benghazi. Although still produced by Michael Bay. Interesting. Yes, Michael Bay played a big role in this movie uh, being made. Uh, it was actually written by these two indie filmmakers. And then they just like took sort of what they thought to be a very unlikely meeting with Michael Bay. And uh, then he Bay loved it. And uh, and then that's how John Krasinski got involved because mm. I guess they struck it up while they were making 13 hours. Wow. While they were ruining our February of 2016. Never forget that. Uh, then, yeah, that's kind of without 13 hours, we wouldn't have a quiet place. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think this is a nice redeeming um, outro for 13 hours. Okay. This is certainly a better movie than 13 hours <laughs> certainly a lot less uh, offensive and let's harmful. just change our whole podcast uh, structure to be is it better than 13 hours mm-hmm. everything gets right. a budget it's very like hot dog not hot dog <laughs> 13 hours not 13 hours hence better than 13 hours this is would you call this a thriller or a horror movie you know it's kind of it's more like a sci-fi suspense movie in a lot of ways okay uh because the creatures uh are are sort of alienish. do you see them you do okay yes um they are scary looking and uh and they are essentially aliens and so the whole movie is a very kind of the movie has major signs vibes mm, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. it is uh it is like a much signs was pretty scary um yeah, yeah. so but this is more scary um than signs uh the creatures because i think you know yeah the creatures in this are kind of more of a concrete presence from very early on mm-hmm the timeline's also different because in this, um, the first thing we see, we have like a prologue that says like 89 days in. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's when we first meet this family of, at the time, five. Uh, Uh-oh, do they double? They- <laughs> <laughs> do they could cut in half? <laughs> so they're, uh, yeah, so the parents, Tom Krasinski and Emily Blunt, and then their three kids. Uh, their oldest is a girl who is deaf, and the actress who plays her is also deaf. Her name is Millicent Sim- uh, Simons. And she was also in the last Todd Haynes movie, Wonderstruck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is, um, and then there's a boy, and then there's a a very or no, there's the middle boy, and then there's like a, a like a toddler. And uh, and so then at the end of this prologue, the uh, the middle child is killed because he makes noise. Well. And uh, and it is uh, by his parents. They're like, we told you not to. No, the, he. Uh, <laughs> it's a very, it's a very like shocking moment. Uh, just because you're thinking like, oh no, movies don't kill kids. Yeah. And right. so it kind of you know by showing its willingness to break that kind of um, that kind of almost sacred cow of like, oh, you don't kill kids in movies. Although I guess after after the resurgence of Stephen King's It last summer, mm-hmm. everything's out the window once we saw that poor little boy <laughs> get his arm ripped off. Terrible. Uh, so. So anyway, so that's 89 days in, and then it cuts to black, and then it says, like, 465 days in. Oh, God. Um, and so then we flash forward, which, which we do the, the math, so I'm told, uh, works out to be roughly a year. <laughs> uh, Who can say? Not me. Only guessing, but <laughs> it's about roughly a year later. And then we pick things back up, and it's the four of them, um, except here's the thing, and this this is where the movies start to lose me. Uh She's pregnant. They had quiet sex. That's what you don't understand? (laughs) I mean, with John Krasinski, who could stay quiet? That's my question. (laughs) Talk about playing a dad. Emily Blunt seems quiet. (laughs) Because she's English? I'm not saying that. that. I think it's what you're saying. Uh, And uh, and so, no, so they're pregnant. So they have chosen Mm. in this world. Do you know how loud it is to unwrap a condom? It's a loud act. I've heard. I mean, at least told me. at least pull out, you know. Mm. So, but you know, I guess I can make a noise, and that's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> what can't? You know, it had to be like the most gentle sex. You don't want any ball slapping. You know, the last oh, thing you God. want is to have the aliens come and strike you down right at that moment. Uh, hard to explain to the kids. Really difficult. Really difficult. So, so I guess you can still find a room. like. Where did you find time to be away from your? Ki- I feel like if you I know. were <laughs> like okay. The, anyway, like so the, that's the, a... the, like the world. Like once we have seen this this absolutely harrowing prologue, 
where we see like just the constant danger that they all live in, the heightened hyper-awareness of making any sound whatsoever. Like, literally, is there anything noisier than childbirth no. and, and then having a baby? I, actually, I don't know. But, but I, I would assume that. every movie I've seen, babies are incredibly loud right out of the gate. Exactly. And then the gate is what I call mm, a vagina. I mean. Yeah. Go yeah. ahead. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I think that we are basing that on movies, but I think those are based on reality. Right. I don't think there's nothing. There documentaries. Quiet births. Right? That doesn't happen. Quiet babies. A myth. Uh, so it seems like just purely uh, intensely masochistic and, and just irresponsible not, and irresponsible to actually have done that and like of course like absolutely i get that you know that parents who have faced the loss of a child in real life you know mm, will, mm-hmm. will want to have more children to help fill that hole uh but in this movie's particular world it's like we're taking as a blessing in disguise right one less kid to try to keep quiet away from the monsters right um and yet they decide to have this baby anyway and so the movie picks up again as she is entering her final month of pregnancy and we're like, ugly. And, uh, and I mean, how do you stop her from complaining about everything? <laughs> she has to be quiet. And so that's the thing is that like so much of the movies, so much of then the rest of the movie, so much of the tension has to do with her going into labor uh, and needing to stay quiet uh, during the labor and then having the baby and then needing to keep the baby quiet. Like, so I just... The sort of like the, the cornerstone of the suspense of the movie was rooted on, was built on something that I just did not buy. Mm, mm-hmm. um, that that this couple would just be like, mm, let's just have a third. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the, the, the more logical way would have been like, you know, 89 days in, like the prologue would have been like she was pregnant before. Mm-hmm. the invasion or whatever it is and then it, and then she finds out what like two months later and then they're like fuck mm-hmm. but they're you know or like you know so like there's nothing you can do right um that would have made a lot more sense yeah, it was very difficult to believe um so there or, to, were... or to feel pity for right because you're like yeah, in you, a way you, you did this to yourself yeah um and so uh and so there's that there are um there are a number of scenes that kind of uh so watching a quiet place uh at first while I was watching it frequently throughout the movie, I was thinking just like, I am watching like a new masterpiece. Like this is, hmm. this is so masterfully made, uh, a, you know, a real showcase for John Krasinski as a filmmaker. Uh, everything is just so thoroughly meticulously considered um, in terms of the actual look and feel uh, of, of it. Um, it's only when you start to like pull at the screenplay mm-hmm. that it starts to unravel a bit. Uh, you know, like there's, there's sort of a lot of hilarious, just forgetting about and misplacing of their other two children. <laughs> like there's a scene, what? like, as there's a, there's a moment where John Krasinski and Tate decides to take the son, the surviving son off into the woods for like some wilderness training, some survival training. And then, um, and then the daughter is like very salty cause she's really much more sort of like tomboyish and she mm. is more aggressive and she's like, I want to be the one to do it. And um and so he's like no I'm taking my boy. So are they are they I saw briefly in the trailer um and you mentioned that the oldest daughter is deaf. Mm-hmm. Do they all use sign language throughout this whole movie? They do. And so that's, is it um subtitled? Uh yeah. Okay. Yeah, when there is when there's sign language uh they subtitle and there's there's also some very very light whispering. Okay. Uh that's is usually also subtitled. Uh and that's it. There's not like people that's don't just interesting. people don't just openly talk. In this How is movie. that? It's really like it, honestly it made me nervous to imagine people seeing it in a normal movie theater because watching it at a press screening where everyone's like super quiet and respectful and not pulling their phones out and not mm, talking eating popcorn right i mean like it would be the worst movie to see a um in an average loud audience mm-hmm. um because it would just completely and constantly shatter that kind of quiet spell that it needs to cast and B, it'd be the worst movie to watch if you show up to the theater like starving <laughs> and you're like, I'm going to buy all the snacks. And then you just sit there and like the sound of your crunching is oh just God. like echoing out over this quiet auditorium of people. When we went to go see Ready Player One, which was a very loud movie, right? Because yeah. there's like those car crashes and there's like, you know, it's a video game. There's like mm-hmm. all this change IMAX. and stuff. It was IMAX. Um, and there was this guy sitting about like t- seven people down from you and he was opening this wrapper the whole time or he was like eating food out of this really loud bag and I was like getting so upset and I saw somebody 
the guy who runs the screenings actually come over and talk to him. I was about to like mean mug the fuck out of him, but he was like an older gentleman. I didn't, I realize now, but like everyone was like turning and looking and I was like, and that was like a very, very loud movie. I can only imagine like trying to do like unwrap gum or something. I forgot about that guy. You're right. That was tough. Yeah, no, uh, that would be a very difficult thing uh, uh, in this movie uh, to pull off. But, uh, but you know, it really, really works. Um, It is, uh, that's part of why I was just so impressed while I was watching it, uh, you know, until I started to consider some of these things about just like, oh, okay, so, uh, so yeah, so Krasinski takes his son off into the woods and then Emily Blunt like turns back to the house and just starts like doing laundry and is so enraptured by the laundry that she literally never notices that the daughter is gone the rest of the day. Because the, what? Because the daughter... You no know, women in their laundry. Exactly. She's just really feeling her oats, pinning, <laughs> pinning some laundry on a line and just thinking about her imminent childbirth um, that surely will be very peaceful uh, and wow. no weird things will happen during. Uh, so yeah, so there's some things like that that kind of, that kind of gradually start to be like, mm, all right, well maybe it's, it's, it, you know the little with some of the writing, but, um, but you know, and the funny thing is as terrifying as the monsters are and as like sort of, uh, brilliant it is to make something as instantly, uh, well, it's just as instant as just sound itself Mm. be something that the audience comes to fear, which the movie pulls off very well. And despite how very scary and very instantly murdery these creatures are, the thing in the movie that caused by far the most fear, stress, anxiety, and tension for me is a single raised nail sticking up out of the stairs leading to the basement of their home. Mm. Because we see it gets set up. It's this fucking laundry. Emily Blunt is carrying her laundry, her bags of laundry, her many bags. I'm like, how many people are in this family? How many clothes do they need? I'm not Denny. I'm like, who are you dressing for? Uh, like no one else left. So, yeah, are they the last people left on Earth? Is no, they're not the of... last people left on Earth. Um, we see kind of um, we see uh, kind of a, a physical evidence that like in this giant sort of like forest tundra that they're living in, like they like kind of like turn a light on at night, and then we see a few other lights like turn on. Mm. Um, it's very much like the in the, the invitation, but mm. uh, but in not scary way. Um, and so, but they mostly like they don't live near anyone else. They don't interact with anyone else. And, uh, and so, so she's dragging these bags of laundry up the stairs, these Mm. rickety wooden stairs. And we see one of the bags like catch on a nail and then pull the nail upright. And then it's just like, okay, I'm just going to start preparing myself now because surely someone's going to step on that at some point. And then sure enough, uh, when she is a going into labor, B alone in the house and C on the run from monsters that have come in the house. She done steps on that nail. Oh my god! And uh, and so so she has to be quiet. Uh, she can't scream, despite the fact that she's also in labor naturally. Wow! So it is, and I will say this: uh, Emily Blunt in this movie, this might be the best I've ever seen her. Wow! She it turns out as as like a silent film actress. That's <laughs> the rise of the silent film actress. She's got the goods. Like yeah. she is so soulful and so expressive mm-hmm. without speaking. And that made me realize I just don't like the way her mouth moves when she talks. <laughs> she's kind of blah, blah, blah. It's like yeah, I'm just like oh, you actually are a lot better when you don't, <laughs> when you don't speak. Uh, so best she's ever been. But anyway, so yeah, then she has to do, she has to process a lot of feelings on her face as oh, she's man. going through all this terrible stuff. But then no one fucking just like hammers the nail back down. So it just well, continues to stick up there. Without making noise. I mean, just like muffle it. Just don't Mu- go downstairs anymore. Muffle it with something. But they have to keep going down there. And then like, and then the aliens are going down there and I'm sure they never step on it. I'm just like, <laughs> and so like literally the entire movie, people walked up and down those stairs. And every time I was like, no. Uh, because that really speaking of noise I know I'm doing the stair thing with your arm right now I I know I just plopped my elbow down while I was gesturing Um, so yeah so the nail is the scariest thing of all Wow, nails always will be um, you know, there's be an entire horror movie of just people walking up and down the stairs (laughs) you're like are they going to step on the nail sometimes they do and sometimes they don't (laughs) and that's the suspense Uh, so but yeah so there's just things and she's always left home alone at the absolute worst times uh, she's home alone when she goes into labor and there's aliens in the house. Then later she's home alone again um, when uh, she wakes up from a nap and there's suddenly a flood and also the monsters are there and her baby is floating around. 
What? It, it, what is this, mother? <laughs> really, it starts to feel like it at times. Um, but uh, but yeah. So it's it's. But she she plays it all beautifully. John, John Krasinski is uh, is great. Uh, the kid actors, especially uh, Millicent Simons, are are good. How about like the um, I don't know what the right phrase is. If it's like audio editing or audio mixing, how is that? Yeah, whole... the sound editing is very. Uh, the sound editing, sound mixing is all incredible. Like it definitely you know gives you that that suspense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, and yeah, just because you, you, what you need to fear is like literally sound. So there isn't like background music. You're actually in there. It's all silent while it's happening. There is a score. Yes, there is score. And that's kind of what I was thinking. I think at the beginning, because I think the whole prologue plays out really without music. And, um, and I was like, is this entire movie going to be like this? And I was getting nervous because I was like, I don't know if my nerves can take like literally like 95 minutes of silence. Except for, you know, like the occasional like bump against something and then you immediately like are panicking like, oh, is the monster going to come kill me right now? Um, so there is a score and I did exhale. <laughs> so I really, for the first time that I felt I heard like some some strings swell up. I was like, oh, thank yeah. you. Thank you, movie, for giving us at least this one comfort. Um, how would you place this against some of the, you, there was the, um, the don't breathe that came out last year, um, with oh, the right. people uh-huh. that like broke into that house. Yes. And then there was the other movie with, um, Joel Ed- Edgerton, Edgerton, mm-hmm. um, that was also kind of a, a, a survivalist family living. So there, I feel like right. that's kind of has a foot in each, each of those movies. Um, would you say this is, um, on the, I don't know, um, better end? Is this feel mm-hmm. like one of a, mm-hmm. one of a piece or is this kind of a standalone? You know, I think that. Ultimately, I like "Don't Breathe" better. Okay, um, but uh, yeah, and this is this is this is more of a you know that was just like a really fucked up, sick, nasty thriller, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. especially with the reveal uh, in the final stretch. But this is more. This is like a sort of like a family drama. Um, you know, the whole thing plays out like a parable about just parental anxieties, about fear and yeah. safety, and the whole "you have to be quiet" thing feels like a metaphor for just that hyper alertness to like safe to caution and to being careful about like you want our kids to get hurt um mm-hmm. and like you have to be careful out there in the world you can't make a sound so you know so it, it plays off as very you know it's very heartfelt and uh so it's just much more of a it's a different kind of animal than don't breathe because that was like you know three low-end criminals breaking into a deranged mm-hmm. man's house to take his money and uh and then getting their just desserts so, but yeah, this is much more of a, you know, this is just, yeah, this is just a family trying to survive. And, um, you know, and it's not, so Ingu, so I sat next to Ingu for this movie. Friend of the show. And she Ingu did, Kang. she did her very best to Ingu it. Um, although like. She's talking through the whole thing? Well, she was, she was, at first she was like, this is very scary. But then, the, <laughs> then the very end, there's literally not until, not until the very final scene, is there a gun? Um, and then suddenly she's like. Uh, that was just NRA survivalist porn. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Angie. Well, here's the thing: if there's an alien attack, you need weapons. <laughs> like, she's like, oh, of course they had weapons to use against the aliens. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, they did. <laughs> it's just the nature of the genre. <laughs> you can't negotiate with the aliens. No, you got to find some way to bring them down. Um, although there is um, there's a moment toward the end uh, where we see this surprise factor has this power um, this power on the alien and the alien has this reaction to it i feel like it's going to be the new go-to gift for migraines Ooh. <laughs> yes so this gift potential i like that in a movie in a quiet place so this one was not um our pick of the week what are you thinking about uh what do you think about rating this one you know i'm still going to give it a binge it um mm-hmm. even though i had my issues with you know with some of the some of the writing some of the plot holes if you will uh, I think just the filmmaking, the acting is also incredible. The concept is so brilliant. I can't imagine the concept being played out uh, mm. better than than they have pulled it off in this film. And Emily Blunt does just give one of the best performances I feel like I've seen in a while. And uh, so, and it's doesn't need our help. It is off to a tremendous start at the box office mm-hmm. this weekend. Uh, but uh, all the same, I in you know just in terms of supporting horror filmmaking. Even though, as I said, it was more of a sci-fi suspense, it's still just very, very good. And so I am going to give it a binge it. A Quiet Place is rated PG-13 for terror and some bloody images. Um, and that brings us to our second movie of the week, which is uh, Blockers, our pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick of the week. Pick, pick, pick is the pick, pick of the week. week. 
Julie, Kayla, and Sam are three high school seniors who make a pact to lose their virginity on prom night. Lisa, Mitchell, and Hunter are three overprotective parents who flip out when they find out about their daughter's plans. They soon join forces for a wild and chaotic quest to stop the girls from sealing the deal, no matter what the cost. <laughs> prom night. It's kind of perfect. I'm in. Julie left her laptop open. You guys are snipping on our kids? All emojis have a secret meaning. Oh! Eggplants are dicks. This is some kind of a dick-related agreement. Maybe they're just saying, hey, you're okay with me. You're okay with me. I mean, maybe. What? Our girls are not thinking things through. I'm going to stop them. I'm in. I'm fully planning on having sex tonight. Wherever the night takes us. The night's going to take us there. Wherever the wind sails our ships. Your ship is going into my harbor. <laughs> Would you have expected this comedy trio? Um, was it John Cena, mm-hmm. Ike Barinholtz, and Leslie Mann? Leslie Mann. Um, it seems like a like a uh, what's that called when you just like a grab bag of like um, three comedians? Well, not even th- John Cena is an actor. Yes, he's a mainly a comic actor yeah. and a very good one. Oh yeah, he was in Trainwreck. Uh, Trainwreck. Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, who saw that coming? Mm, not me. Not me. Um, I'll take him over The Rock any day if we want to talk about our favorite former wrestlers turned current matinee idols. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Like look-wise or actor-wise? I guess both. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, John, I mean, The Rock is a delight, of course. Uh, but no, yeah, John Cena is so fucking funny. Mm. And that continues to be in this movie. And he also doesn't mind getting that ass out. Which is for you. Which happens in Trainwreck and also in this movie. Extra points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he seems like uh, he's also more uh, relatable in terms of uh, being human-sized. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's certainly not in terms of his, his muscles aren't relatable. Mm. Um, but he does seem like less of just like a wall of person mm-hmm. the, way, right. the way The Rock does. Yeah. Uh, so it, they are each brilliant on their own. Uh, he... Baron Holtz and Ms. Mann, and they are even more brilliant together. He has like a much bigger role here than he did in Trainwreck, correct? Yeah, yeah. They're sort of uh, co-leads, the three of them. The story is ultimately kind of more about the parents than it is about the girls, um, but the girls still have um, quite a bit of story as well. And uh, and originally, so this started off as a blacklist screenplay uh, that uh, had the unfortunate title Cherries. Hmm. What do you mean by blacklist screenplay? Uh, so the blacklist is uh, is this sort of tradition in Hollywood where it is the a list that is uh, compiled annually of the best unproduced screenplays. Oh, okay. And so it's sort of like this um, super, super influential list. Um, a lot of amazing movies that start out as blacklist titles. And that's sort of like where people look when they're like, okay, like what movies are worth, you know, developing, mm, mm-hmm. uh, then the blacklist is sort of like, if you make that list, then like the chances that your screenplay is going to be produced go way up. And it's this sort of like prestige thing you can always carry with you. So Weird. blacklist has a different connotation historically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Good to know. So it's like the opposite. Well, you know, Hollywood and their upside down morality. Mm. <laughs> so, um, so it started off as a blacklist screenplay called Cherries and it was written by these two dudes. And, uh, and then it uh, came to Kay Cannon, who prior to this ha- is the screenwriter of the three Pitch Perfect movies. Oh, okay. Was also a writer on 30 Rock. Wonderful. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and then it came to her as her opportunity to make her directorial debut. And, uh, and then she jumped in on it and then sort of like, it's still officially credited to those two guys, um, but she went in and sort of did a lot of retooling of things. And mm-hmm. this is... The thing about writing credits for studio movies is, you know, it's it's every every day I feel like I get the sense more and more that, like, those names listed mean absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, the reason that I think this came to her was because she had worked on, when they were working on Neighbors 2, they, uh, the filmmakers literally convened uh, a giant panel of female writers to go in and to uh, sort of lend a more authentic female perspective mm. to, since that was more of a female-driven story. And we enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but if you, you won't see them credited, though. Right. Uh, because... Jesus Christ. But it's, it, which is less of a, it's less of a sexist thing and more of a, the world of, like, who gets credited for writing a film is an extremely litigious one. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I was reading about this in a book about screenwriting um and uh yeah so there's like there's it's it's intense the shit that goes into that's why normally when you see like screenplay credit versus story credit mm. like 
that's because like somebody fought successfully to get some kind of credit given to them Mm. um it's not like it's like necessarily like oh well here's the story and here's the screenplay so uh it's a it's a complex situation and uh, so that's how Kate Cannon first kind of got brought on board uh, to that made her a contender to direct this movie. And then similarly to the way she was Neighbors 2, she also went in and gave this movie um, a more uh, sort of convincing female perspective, including originally it was about three fathers. Mm. And uh, and so they changed that to make one of the fathers a mother. Um, and, you know, which leads to sort of a more a richer conversation throughout the film about like what it means for her despite being a woman, to still be trying to um, punish her daughter and prevent her from <laughs> exploring her sexuality, mm-hmm. uh, which eventually is called out in a very direct confrontation with um, the woman who plays John Cena's wife, who takes Leslie Mann to task for perpetuating the same bullshit double standard about Ooh. sexuality that men have always had, um, where, you know, your your son having sex is is badass uh but your daughter having sex is a is a, is a a nightmare that exposes your parenting as being having been failed basically right. um this is the pick of the week mm-hmm. so i mean it's a comedy so that means it was funny oh my god it's so funny <laughs> it had one job uh, and it does the job beautifully i feel and- like it's a pretty simple premise and sometimes what ends up happening is that they try to make them too complicated you try to make something simple mm-hmm. too complicated and, and mm-hmm. um and that that takes away from the funny right um yeah i mean the premise is 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 fairly you know it's definitely it's like a one night kind of story mm-hmm. and uh and but it's not like one of those one night stories where you feel like it's punishing you because it's so where you like things are everything terrible you could ever imagine happens, happens. right after each other yeah um but it's not like that because the things that happen here are f- more funny than they are terrible it's just a series of sort of like humiliating mishaps and misunderstandings and near misses uh that just follow the girls from you know from getting ready to the prom to the after party to the after after party uh, with the parents in tow the whole time trying to track them down um, with you know various little things popping up in their way uh, roadblocks of sorts and uh, and it yeah it's it's funny it's very very funny from beginning to end um, actually I will say probably took about 10 minutes or so before I started to really 10 or 15 minutes before I started to really kind of get into the humor of it but that same thing is true of Girls Trip. Mm, yeah. The first 10, 15 minutes of that movie are not funny. Which we are considering the, the gold standard. The gold standard at this yeah. point. <laughs> yeah. The first 10, 15 minutes of the movie, it's not until Dina is at the airport seeing next to David Pinkett Smith mm-hmm. and the booty hole. Yep. That's the, where everything, things that, ever take that, off. That's when things turn over <laughs> in Girls Trip. And from that point onward, it's a nonstop laugh ride. We, we didn't address the whole Tiffany Haddish, uh, Beyonce's face biting situation. No, we did not. What happened there? Um, well, we still don't know. Um, I think Tiffany Hash got in trouble with the Knowles camp. For, oh, no. For telling that story. And, um, and she has now uh, sort of gone in the press and been like, or gone in publicly and been like, I will not be commenting on this further. Um, but it seems like all signs still point to uh, Sanaa Lathan. Who is from? Or Sanaa Lathan. Who's from Love and Basketball. Oh, right. Yeah. Right. Among other things. Um, so it seems like that is the most evidence that exists in the world says that it was Sonali. Lathan. I like the brief theory that it was Jennifer Aniston. <laughs> People really wanted to be Gwyneth Paltrow. Yeah. They really, really wanted to be Gwyneth yeah. Paltrow. Um, but yes. So similarly to <laughs> Girls Trip, um, Blockers takes about 10, 15 minutes before it really starts to find its comedic flow. And then once it does, um, it just never stops. And not only is it funny, but it's like, it's really a progressive story, uh, not only in terms of, you know, calling out the double standard around these kinds of like quest to lose your virginity stories where it's usually met, you know, teenage boys like American Pie. Um, You know, this time it's all about these young girls and their sexual agency. And it also is basically about like how like you just need to trust them, you know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, like in which I think coming on the heels of kind of the national movement after Parkland is sort of like a lesson that we're mm. all, that it really resonates this idea that like, yeah, you know what, maybe, maybe you should trust teenagers. Right. right. Not with everything. Right. Um, and not, you know, and not without, you know, questioning, but, you know, I think that, you know, teenagers deserve credit in a lot of areas. 
Um, and uh, and so Blockers sort of like unwittingly finds itself coming out in a moment where like we as a nation are talking about like, yeah, maybe we should take teenagers more seriously and listen to them and, you know, and, and respond to their their sort of ideals and their visions. Like you've been saying for years to drop the age of consent. Mm-hmm, exactly. <laughs> this, really? is, this is what I'm saying. Like you can trust them to make their own choices. For years you've been saying that. Just All I'm saying. All the time. And I feel like Blockers has my back in that initiative <laughs> um, because they have agency. <laughs> um, so there's uh, there's that piece of it. There is the cast is diverse. And there's also the fact that one of the three girls um, is realizing that she is a lesbian. Oh, interesting. And so we no, I'm have... I'm not paying attention. And so we have a quiet sort of coming out story happening throughout the film where she is... She has not told her friends um, and she has a crush on this girl at the school, um, but she feels pressured. This is also sort of a, a good example of like what heteronormativity looks like. Uh, so, you know, she has her two best girlfriends and they're both making this, this vow to like, we're going to lose our virginity on prom night. You know, one is like, I'm going to do it with my boyfriend. One's like, I'm going to do it with, um, that dude, uh, just like points at a guy and it's like <laughs> that one, I'm going to do that one. And, uh, and then the third one feels like she is at risk of like losing this, you know, she's like, my friends are like having this big Bonnie experience without me mm. and I don't want to be left out of it. And so, you know, so she sort of, uh, decides that she's going to, I'll have sex with this guy that she's going to prom with who she's not attracted to. And, um, and so that's actually what motivates her father. Whereas Leslie Mann and John Cena's characters are just purely motivated by like fear of like their daughters being like sullied and broken by these dirty boys. Um, Ike Barinholtz, despite his character being a deadbeat dad, whose wife, uh, the girl's mother is played by the great June Diane Raphael. Uh, Ike Barinholtz is, despite being the fuck up, he's he knows he's like my daughter's a lesbian. She doesn't know that I know, and she doesn't even know herself, but I know because I'm her father. And he's like, and I don't want her to go out there and make this mistake and mm. sleep with it because mm. when she when he when they all find out that all three of them are in this pack to like have sex with their prom dates, he's like, I don't want my daughter to do this because she's gonna regret the rest of her life because she doesn't want to be with this guy. Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, it's very unexpected. It's not something I've seen in a movie before. No, certainly huh. not a studio film. No. Also, I could, I could, um, I, I buy Ike Barinholtz as that sort of like, yeah, he like always gets the good guy sort of character. Yeah. And you know, and he's definitely not made, he's not made to look like a good guy per se. He's just a very, he's a very, yeah, he's like a, a shaded character. Yeah. Like a sensitive. Uh, his dimensions. Right. Yeah. He, uh, yeah. He has like a, you know, like the, the oaf, oafish yeah. goof, but then also has this like, um, like, yeah, very sensitive. Right. Cause um, he's, cause he's a total asshole and he is not with June Diane anymore because he cheated on her and she's remarried to Hannibal Burris. And he is terrible to Hannibal Burris and terrible to June Diane. And uh, and so, you know, so, yeah, but it's a very, it's a surprisingly layered character. And uh, and so all three of them are just doing the best work. Um, in addition to all of the other adult actors, uh, we also have um, a married couple, a very, very amorous married couple. They are the parents of, um, of Leslie's daughter's prom date. And they are played by Gary Cole and Gina Gershon. Oh yes, <laughs> and uh, and they are uh, th- these two actors are game to do some some crazy sex shit in this movie. Oh wow! Uh, because that's kind of the, one of the jokes that keeps happening is like they have to keep reluctantly the three like uh, avenging parents have to reluctantly keep returning back to that house where the two of them are just boning all over the house while their son's <laughs> away to try to like ask them for more quick information about how they can track down the kids. Uh, and uh, and they kind of get caught up in the middle of their sex games, like quite literally <laughs> at one point. And it is funny. And um, yeah, and there's uh, and Gary Cole shows us Wang. So that was a surprise. Gina Gershon uh, has some, some boob action. And as a longtime showgirl aficionado, it was like coming home. There you go. It really Very comforting was. feeling for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like it's just you're wearing a showgirl shirt right now. I literally am. I literally am. Uh, so I mean, like I just don't. I'm not mad at like anything about this movie. I didn't think it was overly sentimental. I saw some, you know, some review that suggested that it was. Oh, it's so sentimental. And you know me, like I am so allergic to sentimentality in movies. If I feel like it's forced or contrived, or you know, oh, the movie's trying to force us into this emotional moment that hasn't earned. Oh right. Um, yes. This does not do that at all. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's just it's just terrific. It's really really terrific. This was this was the most fun I've ever had sitting next to Ingu at a movie, because <laughs> because we both just howled 
howled mm-hmm. the entire time. Um, and uh, and uh, and then as a result, I think of that she went out and said that this movie is as good as a, as good a studio comedy as could possibly be imagined. Wow. Yes, and on Twitter, and then she has since had a lot of shitty dudes coming for her about that. Really? Yes. Oh God! Of course. Yeah. Right. What are, mm-hmm. the, what, what are the other options? Uh, yeah, the people, the guys asking her, being like, "Oh, well, you know, like, oh, how much did they pay you to say that?" Uh, uh. And well, this guy on his podcast said it. Leslie Mann should be ashamed of herself. What? Yeah, all this. It was you, but still, <laughs> right. like, oh, somebody listened. <laughs> um. So I'm like, not about that. Uh. So yeah, it's it's. Uh, I love it so much. I really wish it was outperforming a quiet place but uh, realistically a quiet place is pg-13 blockers is mm. r and you know so that's just there in the mix so as a comedy it succeeds at being funny in addition it ends up being um sensitive to um issues in a yeah. way that you appreciate and it doesn't offend yeah. you because that's the other thing about comedy is yeah. that um as we talked about with sarah Silverman earlier mm-hmm. the cheapest ones um you know end up with something that kind of sticks in your craw and you can't really feel great about standing mm-hmm. up and supporting. So it's nice when uh, yeah. that's not a concern. No, this this is a progressive comedy. It's inclusive. It's still funny as fuck. Um, it has, you know, it's 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 empowering. Uh, it challenges, you know, decades old uh, gender norms in sex comedy, teen sex comedy. Uh, uh, yeah, couldn't love it more. And it's our pick of the week. Uh, Blockers is rated R for crude and sexual content and language throughout drug content teen parting and some graphic nudity and that brings us to our last movie of the week which is gemini a heinous crime tests the complex relationship between a hollywood starlet and her tenacious personal assistant as the assistant unravels the mystery she must confront her own understanding of friendship truth and celebrity It's so tough for me to ask you what I've got to ask you. What do you have to ask me? You remember things, am I right? I think you might remember things more than most people. Think back. What is the last thing you saw in this house? Did she ever threaten you? Or... No, she didn't threaten me. Because I've heard stories about movie stars. Am I under arrest? Not yet. This movie kind of reminds me, um, it has that uh, invitation feel, um, a bit of that sort of seedy, um, what was that movie with, um, this is a great start. Mm -hmm. It has like, it has the aesthetic of that like drive. Mm -hmm. um, Yeah. Yeah. Ingrid goes west. It has a like right. an L.A. CD noir, noir. Yeah, I guess Ingrid goes west is only kind of a little bit like that, but right. It's but more yeah, daytime. But... Movies with like synthy soundtracks mm-hmm. and and that look like they were filmed with Instagram filters. Mm-hmm. And it's like very, very, very L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it is that. It is that. Um, the filmmaker Aaron Katz was like specifically super influenced by different L.A. set noirs, California noirs over the years. I know this because um, a few weeks ago, I went to an early screening of this at the local Alamo Draft House mm, because mm-hmm. of movies being distributed in the U.S. by Neon, uh, right. which is Alamo's label. That's what made me think of it as Ingrid Goes West. Yes. Yeah. yeah so same same distributor, Neon, that also did I, Tanya. And, uh, and so Aaron Katz had programmed at, I guess, certain um, Alamos throughout the country, uh, uh, sort of like a, a, an evening of films that would end with an early screening of Gemini that would include other California noirs that influenced him. Mm-hmm. And so in my screening, and he was there, was um, we screened Jade, mm. William Friedkin's Jade, starring David Caruso, Linda Fiorentino, right. and Chaz Palmentary, which is set in San Francisco. And then Kenneth Branagh's Dead Again, uh, starring himself and Emma Thompson and Andy Garcia, which was set in LA. And uh, so, which I was... I was gagged to see those movies in a theater, right? Because they were both huge for me when I was a teenager, and uh, and uh, and so. But then I have to say, he almost kind of, kind of undermined his own movie. Oh no! By, by playing great movies, by by playing these two like the, these big sort of flashy, trashy, very satisfying uh, '90s noirs, and then ending it with his film, which looks 
gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Stunning. Uh, you know, the, the, the cinematography, the art direction, the score, uh, just, you know, when you're watching this movie, you're like, oh my God, movies have come so far since the nineties <laughs> with their, you know, with, you know, with, you know, you know, with DV and, 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 uh, just the evolution of film since then now, like movies look like, yeah, just like Instagram shoots. Um, but substance wise, there's so much less substance wise, mm. story wise, there's a lot less going on in Gemini and it leads to one of those endings that just fucks the whole movie. Uh, makes you feel like you wasted your time. S- such a profoundly unsatisfying finale. Um, and it's just kind of like, okay, well, that you're like, well, then fuck you, <laughs> fuck this movie. Right. Like this has all been like because you feel like for the movie, you're like I'm going through this journey in good faith. And I get that like more and more filmmakers just seem utterly dis- you know think the idea of like closure of any sort. Uh, is almost like a like an old fashioned idea mm, mm-hmm. uh, where it's like for a film to be modern, so it can't pedestrian. have exactly. It's so pedestrian to want any sort of satisfactory conclusion to a film. Um, but this movie, up until that point, I was like, I was on board just because you know mood, tone, style. It has all those things in spades, and uh, and so we have here the story of this assistant uh we have this young actress played by zoe kravitz mm-hmm. and her assistant slash de facto best friend lola kirk and uh and so you know it starts off with what feels like a very kind of um you know it feels like a very immediate very recognizable portrait of like what it means to be like a young beautiful famous woman at this point in time um there's uh this you know one scene in particular that feels very pungent uh where she is zoe kravitz and Zoe and Lola are in a diner and mm. a very zealous fan accosts Zoe uh, and uh, and it, it just plays off like oh, this feels so real. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It, it felt like a very, very realistic depiction of what it means uh, now to be, uh, yeah, to be famous. I guess I was reading an interview with John Cho about this movie and he was saying that he thinks that in this movie, fame itself is actually like the enemy or fame is like the villain. Mm. It's uh, the villain of the of the piece. Uh, and so then there's also there's a scene that I've always imagined that famous people do uh, and this movie actually shows, which is that um, when they're trying to track down this crazy fan, uh, they uh, part of Lola Kirk's job is to go through all the tagged photos, uh, all the photos on Instagram <laughs> that Zoe Kravitz has been tagged in. There you go. And then to be like, you know, to find her that way and also to like untag her from unflattering mm-hmm. shots. And uh, I was like, yes, I'm 100% something that people are hired to do. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, So that was fun to see actually play out in a film. I feel like that the movie also has this relationship um, that I I can't think of the other movies in particular, except maybe something like Personal Shopper. Um, But it's like that relationship between assistant and star that is like Mm. more friendship and an employee kind of like blend and it's like what are you doing for you and what are you doing because you like each other personal shopper is a perfect reference Mm, thank you (laughs) okay i'm just gonna stop talking now (laughs) ride that high going out on a win uh no personal shopper is a perfect uh comparison because not only is it that same kind of dynamic as you're saying between yeah where like assistant slash famous person where the boundaries are blurred because usually famous people are some of the loneliest people Mm -hmm, uh mm -hmm. just because you know whether they're rich famous both uh you know like there's not many people they feel like they can trust right and so if you work for them you want kind of being the only person that they trust and confide in and um and so i think that's true in personal shopper and and it's true here and then also, just like that movie, um, it abruptly ends. Um, the relationship ends because of a murder. Right. Uh, and in Personal Shopper, it's also her boss, right? Isn't mm-hmm. her boss? Yeah. Get, yeah. So in Personal Shopper, Kristen Stewart's boss is murdered. And uh, and then in this, uh, Zoe Kravitz's character uh, is taken out uh, at the end of the first act. And then Lola Kirk. Uh, it's, it's In Personal Shopper, it wasn't really so much about Kristen Stewart being a suspect, was it? I think it was because she had gone in there, gone in and like put on her clothes. Right. And they were like, "Why were you there?" Um, right. Yeah. And, well, that one also had like a, the whole like supernatural trip. Right. That was a whole other wing of mm-hmm. that movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. The movie had a few things going on. This but there is, was a, a, a time where she was concerned that yeah. it was going to be her. When this, there's nothing else going on. <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's even no, even no. even the murder itself is barely going on. <laughs> uh, and so now Lola Kirk is um, she 
much unfortunately for her own detriment, acts very evasive mm. um, immediately following the murder. And, um, and is not super cooperative with the detective investigating is played by John Cho. And then she more or less decides to um, to solve it herself. And so she kind of goes on this odyssey uh, dealing with the different people in Zoe's life who had been, who she had recently fucked over, people who had, mm-hmm. people who had a motive, people who had a reason to dislike her. Um, a number of people had threatened to kill her in the immediate 24 hours prior to her death. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and so easy to start with them. And, uh, you know, and it's all very, it's all very atmospheric. It's all very uh, gorgeous to look at. And, you know, and it's somewhat engaging. Um, And then it's sort of like building up to this, uh, this big sort of crescendo twist leading into the finale. And when that is revealed, it just zaps it. It's just like, really? Okay, explain yourself. Like, for what? What's the point? What's the significance of this? And it doesn't seem to have any. Hmm. And the movie really pulls off almost like an impressive feat in that its finale suddenly includes a cameo by Ricky Lake. What? And yet it's still enough to ruin the movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. I'm like, how dare you? How dare you bring out Ricky Lake for the worst part of your movie? That is unforgivable. Unforgivable. Nice try. Not buying it. (laughs) So... Uh, so that that was a real uh, a real bummer, and you know it's not the fault of of you know the cast. Lola Kirk is Aaron Katz actually wrote this for her, really? um, and uh, which I was reading an interview with her today, and she was like, she was like, I'm as surprised as anyone. <laughs> like, Someone knows who I am enough to write me something, right? Um, and uh, but no, he was a fan of hers, and so he wrote this for her, and she is perfect in it because he had seen her in Mistress America, um, mm. which is a great, very funny movie, and she's terrific in it. Um, one of the most, one of the most kind of purely um, entertaining, lighthearted Greta Gerwig performances in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he wrote for her. She's wonderful in it. I think we'll see a lot more great stuff from her. Zoe Kravitz is perfectly cast. Oh as yeah, absolutely. This, as this total cool girl starlet. Yeah. Uh, what, How could you not like well, when she's taking all the pictures with a fan uh, and just like working like, through her all life. her? Yeah, I'm just like, yeah, the verisimilitude of that was was almost unsettling. So, uh, yeah, so it's it's not the fault of the cast. And it's, yeah, it's visually yeah, sumptuous, all that stuff, seductive, beguiling. But it just shits the bed I mean, in the I final stretch. I feel like, should we, should we put out a warning right now and spoil that shit? Because I, I feel like you're making the ending sound sort of interesting enough that I want to see it. Sure. But if you think it's a waste okay. of people's mo- time and money, yeah, I'll warning. S- okay, so guys, I'm going to spoil it. I'm going to say what happens in the final stretch. And then we're probably um, going to be over with the podcast, so you can and, just uh, shut it off Yeah, now. exactly. I don't need to, you don't need to unless you want to hear our, our social uh, media sign-offs. Jason's it. Um, so it hasn't changed. Uh, but okay, so here comes the spoiler. So stop now if you don't want to know what happens in the end, Gemini. Uh, so Lola Kirk's journey... Uh, eventually leads her to this house in the hills and then she goes in and to the house and then she goes upstairs and then zoe kravitz walks out and she's alive she wasn't killed what but we saw the body in the that was the fan the fan showed up at the house and like committed suicide and nobody there identified that it wasn't no the wait a minute the cops didn't know who the person yeah. was? Somehow they did not, uh, had not yet put it together that it was not her. But she's uh, a famous cause, actress. Because I think Lola Kirk, uh, like, identified or like, oh, that's her because of the, the tattoo. If you remember, Zoe Kravitz has, like, a, a Gemini sign tattoo on the back of her neck. And she only ever saw the and back that, of her? And that, yeah, and that girl, maybe because of the nature of the gunshot wound. Um, but that girl also had the same tattoo, so it should be like her, and she had the same hair. Um, you know, she was really trying to look exactly like her. She was an obsessive stalker fan. And so, uh, and so it was not Zoe Kravitz. It was this girl. And then Zoe just kind of went on the run and, uh, and was trying to kind of go off the grid. Maybe I wasn't paying attention enough to this movie, but I thought that the fan was Asian and no, she was. Zoe Kravitz is right. like, uh, okay. Um, and the police and they go enough that she can go investigate. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Uh, that, that's not, people, that doesn't happen. It's not like she was like burned in a fire and they were like, we're not sure who it is. And uh, What? Yeah, I know. I know. 
And I mean, I feel like the premise isn't even that bad if it would have been someone who looked like her. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's super disappointing. And uh, yeah, then she's just alive. And um, and then, you know, Lola Kirk is like, what the fuck? And then Zoe Kravitz is wow. like, Zoe Kravitz is like, you can, you can punch me. Just punch me. You know, to, you know I'm so what? sorry for all you've been through. Just punch me. And so then, um, and then she punches her. And then... Uh, and then, and, then they, again. and then they sort of, yeah, and then there's sort of like an epilogue where Zoe Kravitz is being interviewed by a journalist played by Ricky Lake. Um, and John Cho is there kind of like overseeing things. And, and you know, he's like, oh, I still need to hear, I need to hear from her what exactly happened because she's going to give this interview to talk about like, oh, I had this, you know, this stalker fan who showed up my house and, and uh, you know, here's, you know, because I think it was reported that she was dead. And so she's sort of like going on TV to talk about what happened and, and that's just kind of the last scene. All right, I'm upset. Let's let's move on. <laughs> yeah, that's just kind of the last scene. It just ends with like them all kind of exchanging glances while Zoe Kravitz is taping this uh, taping this interview for TV about what happened, and that's it. You can get two people that look alike. She doesn't look like her at all. Honestly, I'm probably forgetting some detail. It's been probably a month, month okay, and a half since I watched still. this. But yeah, all the same. That's the idea is that like, because, you know, Lola Kirk walks in and she's laying there, this body that looks like Zoe Kravitz with the hair and the tattoo on the floor. Yeah. I so, don't like it. Point being like, you know, the big after all this mounting tension, the big twist being like, oh, just kidding. She's still alive. And then it's just kind of like just goes back to normal. Um, it's that's ridiculous. Intensely unsatisfying. She wouldn't tell her assistant. I don't know. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, no, it's bullshit. Um. Okay. So, are you giving it a send it back then? No, I'm giving it consume. <laughs> For those who stayed, it's yes. a consume. Yeah, it's still it's still a consume. Um, um, it is not bad enough for me to give it a send it back. Uh, it's still like a night. If you don't care about satisfying conclusions in a movie, mm. there's still a lot here to enjoy. Is it because you're a Gemini? I am not a Gemini, um, but you know the whole Gemini twin thing. Oh, they're like two halves of the same person, whatever. Uh, you know, and also the girl a lookalike dies in her place. Gemini twins, blah 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 blah. I don't know much about this. <laughs> what are you in? Just taking shots Aquarius? now. Uh, no, I'm a Capricorn. You're a Capricorn. I should have known. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a Pisces. <laughs> now that makes sense. Right? Um, Gemini is rated R for pervasive language and a violent image. These. Okay. Um, and that's it. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of The Binge. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes if you are an Apple iPhone user. And if you're on Android, you can still listen to podcasts on Android. Um, uh, SoundCloud has an app, which is where these all live. And then there's Stitcher. And then there's Pocket Casts. It's uh, Google Play Music. I think we have lots of options. Um, and you can also check out our website at thebinge.us. And Jason is on Twitter at... Excess Baggage. I'm at Fight Balance. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye, guys. Bye, guys. Binging on movies with Rebecca and Jason. You made it to the end, that's amazing. There, there goes, goes the, the binge. binge.